Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Let's stand together and we're going to look at verse 35 tonight. Uh, last week we, we, we began to talk about these verses in chapter 1 through chapter 3. And these are the prequel to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Luke is setting some things up for us here. So in Luke chapter 1 verse 35 he says, And the angel answered her. This is, this is when the angel's telling Mary, you're going to be with child. And uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. She says, how's that going to take place? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, uh, overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. That's a key thing. Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her, own age, in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who, has, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, again, we thank you for your word and pray you would Father, as we lay this foundation, you build our faith, strengthen us in faith, and let us grow in you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, as we've been talking the last several weeks, the whole purpose of Luke was to build a spirit of certainty of faith in the life of Theophilus, and then it has expanded it to be used to the church. In these first three chapters, there's two very clear levels where he is building uh, uh, the story and telling the story for the sake of building faith. One is he's trying to help them build faith that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He's pointing out things so they get it. This is not just some standalone guy. This is the promised Messiah from what we call the Old Testament. He's also building faith in Theophilus that Jesus is for all mankind, not just for the Jews. That's a really big deal if you understand the, the culture of that day and what was, what was happening in that people. And I'll tell you, there, there's, there's some who want to build on that culture today that there's some elite group that get to be saved and it's not open to anybody else. It's always one of the mistakes. The mistake of the Pharisees, it's the mistake of pride that only certain people are welcomed in even though Jesus himself said that he came for all the world. So we have in the first three chapters of Luke most likely uh, he's told us that these are from eyewitnesses. Most likely in these first three chapters as you read them, it's most likely the narrative of Mary. Uh, during the time that Paul's in prison, it's probably in, in Caesarea, it's probably the time when Luke is gathering all of this. They've heard this oral tradition. He's had time now to go to Jerusalem. And we're getting this, this, the story of, of Mary. Her actual story begins in, in verse 26. She's told things that only she could have known about all throughout these verses. Everybody else is dead. And no, other people weren't there. She's telling things that only she could know about. And, and Luke is saying, I got these from eyewitnesses. And so she gives us this word 
that she has been chosen to have the son of the most high, holy, holy, set apart. She's still a virgin. She's betrothed to be married. And her question is, how can this be? How how did this take place? And now this issue of faith with certainty really comes into play because the angel of the Lord says to her, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. You're going to find yourself with child. This is very similar uh, in, in wording and instruction to the way the world was created. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And he began to create. He began to do things. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is the second Adam. God, he's You know, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and now he's breathing life into Mary that this, his son will be fully human and fully God. Now, without this truth, all the rest of the redemptive story falls apart. If he'd have been born just by natural means, he'd have been just like us. He was born by the miracle intervention of God upon this earth. That's a fundamental doctrinal thing we stand on. Otherwise, Jesus couldn't give his life for anybody. But he is holy. He is set apart. He's a divine creation of God. He is the second Adam on this earth. And because of that, he doesn't have the sin nature like we have. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week when we talk about temptation and how he faces temptation in the way, in in comparison to how we have temptation. At this time, Mary's a young girl. She's been betrothed to be married to Joseph. This, the betrothal uh, of a young girl to a man would usually be about a year before they actually got married. But it's different than just being engaged. If you're engaged to some guy and you don't like him six months into it, uh, you can rip the ring off and throw it at him or just keep the ring and walk away and have a big fight over that. But there's not a whole lot legally that's going to be going on. In this case, it was a legally binding process. And the only way that he could, that, that Joseph could be free from it was to divorce her. Even though they had not consummated their marriage, they weren't actually married. They're in the state of betrothal. It's most likely, as you read the story, that after the Spirit of the Lord has come upon us, six months after Elizabeth has, been, uh, has conceived a child, Uh, Mary has been told this by Gabriel. Elizabeth has a child. You're going to have a child. She packs up and goes to be with Elizabeth. And we read this great story of her coming into the presence of Elizabeth 
and Elizabeth and John are baptized, are touched by the Holy Spirit. They make this prophetic claim that he is the son of the Most High. He's the son of God come to redeem the world. And we see this thing. She stays there for several months. She stays there probably, it looks like about three months because she comes home just before, uh, just before John is born. So she's now several months along in her expectancy. And she arrives back in Nazareth. And this is now going to be a scandal. Uh, this is going to be a tough, tough thing. It's not a big community. It's not a huge place. They, the, legally, things have happened. This will be a scandal that will, in some ways, follow Jesus like stories follow politicians throughout his life. And later in Jesus' life, the Pharisees will make a, a, a claim about, you know, weren't you even born in sin? And the, the, the thing that's coming from is the story that Mary comes home pregnant. Now, Joseph knew he wasn't the father. He had absolute knowledge. He wasn't, he wasn't the dad. And he, he thinks, okay, I'm going to divorce her. Now, he, was, he could have been very rough with that divorce and really caused trouble. But he, he loved her, the Bible says. And because he loved her, he just thought, I'll divorce her quietly. I'll just do this quietly. I don't want to be any part of this. This is an unholy thing. I can't imagine why she's done this. And, uh, and, and he's going to d- divorce her. But in, in Matthew, we learn that in the middle of this, he has a dream, and God reveals to him, this is something that is holy. You should take her in. And Joseph becomes obedient to the dream. He becomes obedient. So uh, Mary tells of this proclamation and tells of what's happened to her in this story. And she gives this prophetic thing that the angel has said to her, his kingdom will never end. This is a, a testimony to us. and to, His kingdom is never ending and it's all encompassing. Now, uh, Joseph marries her. He takes her in. Uh, they, they, then, then comes with this historical moment where they are told they have to go back to the city of their origin and pay taxes. Well, Joseph and Mary both are out of the lineage, different strings, but out of the lineage of David. That means they have to go to Bethlehem to legally pay their taxes. That's approximately a 70-mile trip. For us, that's about an hour in the car. For them, they are walking or coming on a donkey, and she is eight or nine months pregnant. It is a long, torturous, tough trip. But God is drawing together his story. The birth of Jesus is another step 
in the fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament prophets had said he would be born in Bethlehem. So when the Magi show up looking for this king that's been born, they ask, where can we find him? And the scholars say, what? He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, the small town that David was born in. This is another one of these moments where Luke is showing, listen, this guy is the Messiah. He is, he's met, he's checked all the boxes. Now, uh, he tells a startling story. He tells the story about the shepherds. And these shepherds are out in the field watching the flock. Many people, many theologians believe that the shepherds at Bethlehem were there, the sheep that were there were the sheep that the priests and all would sell to travelers who would come and want to partake in the Passover but couldn't bring an animal with them, but they could come there and buy, that these are where those sheep were taken. Now, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing when you think about it. So these shepherds are out watching the sheep, and the angels show up, and they decide they're going to go into town. Now, what you have to understand about the shepherds is this is a society filled with a hierarchy, and it's a society filled with prejudice. Every society without Jesus has this hierarchy of values. So you go to godless countries, countries without Jesus, countries of other religion, and what's the highest authority? Government many times is the highest authority. It's the highest thing. And, and for you to give your life for your country, that's just an expect. For them to say you're not meeting either, and they can take your life, it's no big deal. It's, it's the highest authority. Jesus is changing this. He is saying all people are valuable. And throughout the whole book of Luke, he will keep coming back to this theme. We have a nation built on this truth that all people are created equal. That's a biblical truth. That's a scriptural revelation. That's certainly not the way the king of England saw things. That's not the way the lords of England saw things. It's not the way most of the world at that point in time saw things. There were people born to privilege. There were commoners. There were different levels of people. And the shepherds would have been at one of the lowest rungs of people that were alive at that time. And yet God chooses them to be some of the first preachers and proclaimers of what God is doing. Why is he doing that? Why is Luke? Because Luke is once again saying, listen, this story is kind of amazing. I mean, if, if, if it had been anybody else, you know, if it had been anybody on their own, they would have picked somebody at a higher standard of life to proclaim this. But God is lifting up people. He's tearing down those walls. And Jesus will do that all through his ministry. He will tear down these prejudiced walls that we built on family, on nationalism, on race, on gender. Jesus is always tearing those down and saying 
every life is valuable. In this day, in many courts, a shepherd's testimony would not even be accepted. They didn't have a high enough standard amongst the eyes of authorities that if the shepherd came in and said this happened, they would go, that's just a shepherd. We don't, we don't believe them. Now, can you imagine that? That's hard for us to imagine because we live in a place that's been influenced by Christian, uh, Christian principles. But that wasn't the case in their day. And yet their testimony was presented by Luke. It's another one of these things where Luke is showing this transformational thing of God where he is valuing all people. The shepherds are another sign of Jesus tearing down barriers and lifting up people. The value of people is one of the startling messages of Jesus. And hear me, it is completely anti-cultural. We talked about this the first week when we talked about the two cultures that were predominant in Jerusalem. The Jewish culture who saw anybody who wasn't a Jew as a dog and the Roman culture that was all about power. And if you had power, you had to submit, uh, everybody had to submit to you. So this is this anti-cultural message that everybody's of value. And in this very beginning, he's saying it. Why is he saying it? He's saying that so the church will understand so that these people who are getting saved will understand. Listen, God used the shepherds. He used these. We got we to gotta, we gotta rethink how we see people. We got to rethink this thing. Now, uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus would most likely stay in Bethlehem for some time. When, uh, when, uh, when, when Herod would decide to kill the babies, he's going to kill all the babies two years of age and younger. Uh, he's going to have them go in and kill all of them because of the timing. The, the Magi, as we call them, would most likely not have been there the first night. I know our traditions, all of our Christmas programs, have them showing up the first night, but they most likely were not there the first night. Uh, and it is, it's not even specific that there were three of them. There could have been 12 of them. could have been 10 of them. Why do we get three of them? The gifts. You get three of them because of the, of the gifts that they gave. But the Bible doesn't say there were only three of them. So again, we come back to this point that Jesus is born in Bethlehem as a fulfillment of prophecy, and some of these things that are happening now are tearing down barriers and fulfilling prophetic ministry, prophetic things. And now we come to the stories of Simeon and Anna. Jesus would be circumcised on the eighth day because Jesus is going to fulfill the law. Everything required by the law, Jesus is going to fulfill. He would then be presented at the temple in Jerusalem on the, uh, probably the 40th day. They would take him in and present him. The firstborn of uh, would always be presented at the temple because God has put a premium on first fruits. You get this? He's put a premium on first fruits because 
it all points to Jesus, the Christ, who's going to be the firstborn of a new kingdom. The first one of a new kingdom. And he was going to be sacrificed for that kingdom to be born. So God puts this premium on the people who follow him, honoring this thing of the first fruits. And so what he has set up is that the Levites actually represent the first fruits and they are given completely uh, to God, the tribe of Levi. They don't have inheritance, they don't have all this other stuff that the other tribes get. And that when the child is born, that there is an offering that has to come in honor of the first fruits. For the poor people, it's these couple of doves or you know, some small thing. It, God made a way so that the poor could do it. If you got richer, there was a, a higher expectation. But they come and they present Jesus. They bring him in and they present him as a... They don't realize they're presenting the real first fruits. This is him. This is the guy that's going to put an end to all this because he's going to be it. He's going to be the sacrifice for all of us. So while he's there, Luke tells the story of this guy, Simeon, who has been promised, according to, to Luke, uh, that he's going to live until the Messiah is born. And he tells us this story that Simeon takes the baby, takes him up in his arms in verse 28 of chapter 2 and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In other words, now I can die. I've seen him, the Messiah. For my eyes have now seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And verse 32 becomes very, very important. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. Once again, he's laying this foundation that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy and that the door is open to the Gentiles. It's hard for us to imagine how... uh, how startling and aggravating that would have been to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It would be a struggle even throughout the New Testament as people tried, as as certain Jewish people tried to get the Christian church to come back under the law. And Paul would preach, listen, if you try to keep the law, then you've got to keep all of it. No, we we are saved by God. Grace through faith in Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, this is a gift. This is an upheaval of what the Jesus is an answer to the law. He's a fulfillment of the law. And anybody who comes to him can come under the grace of God through faith in Jesus. This is a God throwing the door to heaven opened us, throwing the door to his presence open to you and me, that we who before couldn't come could now come. But not by the blood of, of lambs, but by the blood of the lamb, by the perfect sacrifice, we come before him. We don't come before him because 
we were born in church, we were dedicated in church, or we took a catechism and got, you know, got recognized or whatever they do at catechism. None of that stuff is what matters. What matters is, is that we put our faith in Jesus. We put our trust in him. I'm not saved because I was a pastor's kid. I'm not saved because I'm a pastor. I'm not saved by anything else than I put my faith in Jesus. And I rest under the grace of God. And this is the story. So he'll become a light for the Gentiles, and God's going to use Paul to throw the door open to the Gentiles for them to, to come to Christ. The story now moves to 12 years later. And as you walk through this, you'll, you'll find these great leaps of time. And there's about a 12-year story here. And uh, they have gone to the, to the Passover. And they are there for several days. Probably there the whole week of the Passover. Now, you have to understand in that day and age, uh, a 12-year-old, you got every place by walking or riding a donkey or something, you're not going to get very far. And a 12-year-old would have a, a lot of freedom. And he, Jesus had a lot of freedom. That wasn't an unusual thing in that culture. He had a lot of freedom. And at the end of the feast, it was naturally time for them to go home. And the group gathered. They, they usually traveled with groups for safety's sake many times. The group had gathered together. Uh, the people, probably the people who had come from Nazareth gathered together and started their way back home and Mary and Joseph just assumed Jesus is in the group but something as they're traveling they begin to think we haven't seen him for a while we better go find him and they discover Jesus isn't with the group he's not with them at all and so they make their way back to uh, back to Jerusalem and they begin to search for him and they're, they're looking for him, and they're looking for him. And finally, they go to the temple, and they find Jesus there. And he is asking questions of the, of the, of the leaders. He's responding to their questions. And they are amazed at the things he's saying. He, he, he's, they see insight and spirit, something they haven't seen before in any other kid that age. Mom and dad show up and go, why have you done this to us? And in verse 20, it says, they did not understand uh, the saying that he spoke to them. What did he say to them? He said to them, uh, didn't you know I'd be uh, you know, in my father's house? By this time, Jesus is becoming aware, if he hasn't been aware the whole time, of who he is in all of this story. Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Why, why are you looking for me? Why are you, what are you confused about? In verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 50, he said, They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And, but then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary's telling him, look, all these things that have happened. I, when, when the angel showed up, when the shepherd showed up, uh, when, when these prophecies were made, I, I would just storing these things up in my heart of what God was. I wasn't talking to a lot of people. I would just kind of weigh in it all out. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He was obedient. He grew. 
He did what he was supposed to be doing. We don't know what all that means. We, we don't know what all Jesus did. Here's, here's I, 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 I hope to look in heaven and see what Jesus was like as a kid. Here's what we do know. We do know that some 30 years later, his mother is at a wedding feast in Cana. And to the embarrassment of the people who are throwing the feast, the wine has run out. It would be a major social failing. She knew these people somehow. She liked them somehow. And she calls for her son, Jesus, who's there. And she says, basically, you got to do something about this. And he's basically, what, what do I have to do with this? And she says, looks at the servants, and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, listen, friend, she knew something. She had seen something. She was aware of some power that he had. She, something had let her see he can do something about this. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, get these water to go fill them up, these jugs, go fill them up with water. And they fill them up with water, and there have been big things. And he said, now take him to the, take him to the host, the guy who's running the show here, and uh, let him take a drink of it. And the guy who's kind of running the show, who's kind of the MC of the program, goes, why did you save the best wine for last? Usually you give the good stuff at first when everybody gets nice and drunk, then you give them the bad stuff. You saved it for the end. And again, it's just this, this, this concept of Jesus revealing himself and walking under the power of his Father and that he meets all the requirements of the law. We most likely leave Mary at this part of the story. Uh, we'll see Mary a few times, like, like at Cana. We'll see, we'll see her uh, come with the other children and try to uh, get him out of trouble and bring him home. And we see, him, we see her at the crucifixion, and we see her at some of these other places. But her story and all that she's an eyewitness to and tells is pretty much ended at this point in time. And the story shifts as it's beginning to shift from all these prequels to his ministry to his ministry and what Jesus is going to do. Now, before that happens, in the very beginning of that, you know, at, at the age of about 30, so now another 18 years later, the baptism of Jesus is, takes place. In Luke three twenty-one, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Uh, again, we see Jesus fulfilling the law and we see the example of Jesus who is the son of God, uh, the, third, you know, the person of the Trinity who is praying to the Father. And he is showing us and leading us. Now, we move from that 
to, uh, to, to, at that point in time, to the genealogy. In Luke 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years old, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Matthew and Mark both give us a genealogy to follow. It's a very important deal because it is a fulfillment of prophecy and a revelation of who God was going to work with. In Matthew's genealogy, he traces Joseph's family back to David. Matthew's letter was a defense of Jesus to the Jews. Inside of Matthew's Matthew's writing, you're going to find more Old Testament references of what Jesus fulfilled, telling the Jews, he's the guy. He's the guy. We've been watching for it. He's the guy. Joseph would have been seen as Jesus' legal father, and he traces Joseph's line right back to David because the key prophetic deal was he had to be the son of David. He had to come from the lineage of David. Luke traces back through Mary. Luke is presenting to the Gentiles the message of who Jesus is. Mary was the daughter of Heli. The son, he was like the son-in-law is what Joseph was. Mary was the actual daughter of Heli, and he traces that lineage not only back to David, but Luke traces it all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Luke is telling us Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of all mankind. Everybody's in. Everybody gets a chance. He's the Son of God, and he is the Savior of the world. This is the foundation of certainty that he is presenting to Theophilus. Listen, you can be certain because he is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But listen to these stories. Listen, his lineage goes all the way back to Adam. Listen to what Simeon said. Listen to what Zacharias said. Listen to what these others have said. He didn't just come for the Jews. We're all in. <coughs> we all get to be a part of this. This is going to be a major, uh, the major story of Paul. We believe Paul had great influence on the writing of the book of Luke. And he had great influence on the, on the writing of Acts. And Paul's story is continually the story that if you accept Jesus by faith, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. And so he's building that certainty. So what we have here is we have a book that was written in the lifetime of Mary and the apostles. They were alive when it's written. They've helped tell the story. He's harvested harvested this story from eyewitnesses. They, have, they now recognize in the earliest days of the church his writing as divine truth and revelation. Before A.D. 100, this book is being quoted by the church fathers and we have 
enough evidence of it to compile that book from the church father's writings without there being a book there. And they talk about this gospel, <coughs> this memoir of, that Luke has written. So it's recognized in that lifetime as divine truth and revelation. And now the story will turn fully to the ministry of Jesus based on this foundation that Luke is laying for us. He's a fulfillment of prophecy, and he's for everybody. That's good news, amen? That's the importance of these three chapters. And now as we begin to turn, we're going to look next week at the temptations, what happens in these temptations, what Jesus was like in those temptations. And then we're going to move really into the teachings of Jesus that many times are common to us, but were really radical teachings in that day and that age that sets Jesus apart from every other teacher and transforms societies. All right. If you have any questions, come see me. Let's stand and let's pray. I would encourage you to, to read those first couple, those first three chapters of Luke a time or two this week and look for those things. Where is he saying Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy? Where is he saying Jesus is for everybody? And as you read through those and you begin to do that, that's going to build your faith that Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy and that Jesus is for you and for me. Amen? Father, I thank you for your word. I pray tonight that you let our faith be built. Lord, some of these things seem a little common to us. We're just so at ease that you're for everybody because we've been raised in that culture. But let us see the marvelous work that your son did for us. Lord, let us see how he lifted up all people and how we should be a part of lifting up all people. And Lord, let us hear the call for us to repent and to follow him with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in the name of the Lord tonight.